and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. When we talk about Revelation chapter 21, if you're joining us this morning, you haven't been with us, we're looking at the realm of the king. We're talking about heaven. Um, And so this is the second section here that we're talking about uh, the eternal state, a new heavens, a new earth, a city called Jerusalem that we as Christians are promised that we will inhabit. Um, And I can guarantee there won't be things like earthquakes that devastate people in the new heaven and the new earth. Um, But that's where we're at. We're looking at what will heaven be like. And as we look at this, I want to give you a biblical perspective on it. Obviously, there's lots of different ideas on heaven. Um, What Hollywood has to say to us, what pagan um, beliefs and philosophies and religions have taught us over the years. Um, Even people having near-death experiences and claiming that they went to heaven. um, I would caution you on all of those things. We want what we want to believe about the Bible or believe about heaven to come from the Bible. Um, And so that's my goal this morning is what does the Bible have to say about heaven? Um, I'm going to tell you right now, there are things I'm going to have to just kind of jump past as we go through this. Um, And I encourage you to do some of your own study on it. Okay. Um, Read Revelation chapter 21 again, look at chapter 22. I've included three books on your handout that have really great information about heaven. Um, One by Chip Ingram, one by John MacArthur, another by Randy Alcorn. Um, Really good information on heaven within all three of those books. Um, but we want to see heaven through, through God's eyes so that it can provide hope to us. Um, you know, and, and when we talk about heaven, some people, uh, there, there tends to be an approach to heaven. It's like, you know, I haven't even got to Hawaii yet. Um, I'm not sure if I want to go to heaven. And I think that sort of communicates how little we think of heaven. Um, because if you truly thought about what it is, according to the Bible, Hawaii's kind of lame, honestly. Um, I, I've been there. It was great. We had a lot of fun. But it has nothing on the new heaven and the new earth that God has prepared in this unbelievable city. Uh, maybe you've been to a big city and you just thought, that was so cool. Maybe you've been to New York City and uh, uh, my, my family went there years ago and they got to go to all the different restaurants and, and dad, I'm going to call you out. He said he felt like he was going from, from one, one flower, oh, he was like a little bee going from one flower to flower, just enjoying all the nectar that had to, they had to offer. And my sister said, more like a little pig going trough to trough. Um, <laughs> Which was pretty hilarious. But, uh, you know, when you think about big cities, you know, maybe it's New York City, maybe it's London or Paris or Vienna or Hong Kong. What, what major city would you pick to go to? Um, if you could choose between a month-long vacation to Hawaii or Italy or maybe some other place, where would you want to go? Um, for me, I was trying to think, you know, it'd be really hard for me to choose. Like if somebody said you can go moose hunting in Alaska or tour all 32 major league baseball parks in a season, what would you pick? I go, boy, I just don't know. That's hard to choose. Maybe you don't care about either of those. Um, but if you had to choose between any of those things or something else or going to heaven right now, what would you pick? And so the apostle Paul, he said that to live was Christ and to die was gain. 
to leave these broken bodies filled with sin and leave this earth that is corrupted with sin was, was a gain. It was a benefit to him. And I think sometimes we have an, uh, um, we sort of look at heaven as though, you know, I could wait. There's some things I'd rather do here. Um, and that's not necessarily wrong. God has put us in, in our heart to, to love this world, to enjoy his creation, to look after the people that we care about. But we can't love the world system and love God. Um, and so, you know, if this world is more appetizing to us than the next, it's very likely that our view of what God has in store for us is too small, it's misinformed, it's under-evaluated, and it's not based on Scripture. C.S. Lewis said it this way, he said, if we consider the unblushing promises of the rewards of the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so I'll do my best in the next 30 minutes and 30 seconds to help you see what heaven is afresh through biblical eyes. But I would encourage you, put time and effort and reading on your own into what God has in store. Um, a proper view of heaven, it will change the way that you live your life on this, on this earth, and it should stir in us a deep longing for Jesus' return. So let me pray, and we'll look at these verses together. Our Father, this morning, I pray that you would stir in us a strong desire, a, a yearning to be in your presence. We understand that you're here with us. We understand that your spirit indwells us as those who have been saved by your son's death, burial, and resurrection. We're new creations and dwelt by the very spirit of God. We understand that you're with us. Um, but I long for a time, I look forward to uh, this place that you've promised where I will not know sin. Uh, my, my, my body will be made new. My uh, drive towards sin will be removed. And that will be true of everyone there. Your presence will be so powerful um, among us that it, it will just transform every interaction that we have everywhere. And yet at the same time, God, I pray that as, as your son taught us to pray that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, that you would continue to grow me to have my desires match your own and to bless other people rather than use them. Um, to take what you've given me, the gifts and time and abilities that you've given me, and use them not for earthly gain, but for heavenly treasure. Uh, show us what it is to follow in the steps of your son who uh, spent a little time here on earth and then ascended and sits at your right hand and promises that we'll sit there as well, in your presence, in your glory, uh, seeing you face to face. We, we look forward to that. And I pray that that looking forward would cause us to live differently today. I also pray, God, for anyone in this room that has not trusted in your son, Jesus Christ, they have not believed in his death, burial, and resurrection, that they would see what they're missing if they do not trust him. Um, there, there's one way to the Father, and it is through the Son. And so I pray that they'd see what they're missing if they haven't trusted you in the life to come, but also in this life here and now. And that they would not leave here without being sure that their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 9 of Revelation chapter 21. He says, Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven plagues came and spoke with me. 
So one of the same angels that helped God pour out wrath on the earth comes and speaks with John in this vision. And he says, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Then he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, like, excuse me, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. The 12 angels were at the 12 gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city is symmetrical. And that goes to show you, if your house is decorated and it's not symmetrical, it's not godly. Um, (laughs) The city wall had 12 foundations and 12 members of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were written on the 12 foundations. And so when we learn about this city, the first thing that we learn is who is there and who does it honor. And so it says that it is made, it is created for the bride that is the wife of the lamb. Um, This is really strong imagery that's within the scriptures. A a video to look up on Amazon and possibly watch is called Before the Wrath. And what they do within that video is they show you how the Galilean wedding was really what Jesus was talking about when he said that we were his bride and that he was going to go away and prepare a place for us and that his return was an hour that only the father knew. That was how the Galilean wedding worked. The husband would make a proposition. uh, uh, He would seek to be engaged with his bride and she could either say yes or she could refuse. And if she said yes, they lived apart for about a year. And during that time, within that year, one of the things that the bridegroom, the the groom would do is he would add on to his father's house a place that was prepared for his bride. And the father, he was the one that said, now is the time that you can go and be married to her. And he would choose that himself without telling anyone. So what Jesus was talking about was he was going to go away and he was going to prepare a place for his bride. And it was going to be amazing. It was something that he is there now making this new city, this new Jerusalem for us. And it's going to descend from heaven onto earth. And he's going to invite us in as he would, or as a groom would, the bride. And only the father knows when this is going to happen. So it's really beautiful picture that's going on within the scriptures when we talk about marriage. When you get to Ephesians chapter five, Paul actually says that the marriage between a man and a woman is this grand mystery of Jesus being married to his people. And so it's, it's this powerful love story of God uh, seeking us out, wanting to be engaged to us, giving us the opportunity to say, yes, I'll be engaged to you or no, I will not. He doesn't make us marry him. He doesn't make us join in relationship with him, but he gives us the choice to, to follow him and trust him or to reject that. And so, uh, you know, do you want to be in intimate relationship with God? He's offering it to you. And then, so uh, then he says, he's going to go away and he's going to prepare this place for us. And that's to provide us hope that when he returns and all of this comes to an end, this life and this world, as we know it with sin and brokenness, when it comes to an end, he's going to welcome us into a new home, a new city that as we look at this is truly dazzling, amazing, without sin, remarkable. It's to provide us hope. It's to give us something to live for as we move forward. And so that's who it's about. It's about uh, Jesus' bride, church age believers, and believers from every age being joined to God in this new city. And so that's what the 12 gates are about. They carry the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, And so we know that the nation of Israel and the Jews, they were saved by God's grace, and they're going to be honored within the gates of the city. 
Uh, God's plan of salvation includes Old Testament saints, those ones set apart and saved by, actually by Jesus. Sometimes we miss this, but Old Testament saints were saved by Jesus. Romans 3.25 says that it's God's forbearance looking forward to the cross that actually saved Old Testament saints. That when they sacrificed a lamb within the temple for their sin, they were actually picturing how Christ would die on their behalf. And all of their sins were forgiven because of Christ's future action. We look back now at his past action and understand that we've been saved by his death, burial, and resurrection. But the Old Testament people, they trusted in Jesus. They may not have been able to name him, but Jesus said in John 8, 48, that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Uh, he says in John 5, 46, that Moses wrote about Jesus. Uh, Isaiah saw Christ's glory and wrote about that, John chapter 12. And so uh, we see that the Old Testament saints, they look forward to Christ, a really interesting thing about Abraham is that he was promised land, seed, and blessing. Do you know the only piece of land that Abraham ever owned was his burial plot? The city that he looked forward to, the land that he would someday own that would be his was the new Jerusalem, is the new city of peace, the new heavens and the new earth. See, his, his mind was fixed on a, a country and a city that's founder and architect was God. And so when you think about heaven, it's actually kind of interesting to consider that when we get there, when we go to the new heavens, the new earth, and we're there, uh, there's going to be people from millennia past that we will have an opportunity to meet. Um, Abraham, his, his children perhaps. Maybe, maybe we'll get to meet somebody that was a part of his household. Uh, maybe we'll be invited over for dinner. Maybe we'll invite them over for dinner. Maybe we'll all go to the park together and there'll be this new form of music that we've never heard and there's a concert that, that we get to be a part of. Uh, maybe, maybe they played games back then. Maybe you'll get to learn a new card game. I don't know. But all of these different cultures throughout time, these different people, the, the commonality is they've trusted in God. They've believed in Christ. And so if heaven sounds boring to you, I'd encourage you to think about this. People from throughout the millennia, different cultures, different languages, we'll all speak the same language, we'll all be able to communicate, but different people, different cultures, all of this coming together and us being able to meet and learn and have new experiences and make new memories. People whose stories, they may not be recorded in the Bible, but their name, like yours if you're in Christ, is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so you have the nation of Israel, people saved in the Old Covenant. They're in heaven. The 12 foundations of the walls, they carry the 12 apostles' names of the, of the Lamb. There's God's new covenant people that saw God in his fullness, uh, Jesus, his son. Uh, they're honored and beloved within this city. Again, you can kind of imagine, maybe there's, a, maybe there's a park in this big city and you're wandering around and you meet somebody that lived in 15th century France or maybe they lived in 2nd century Greece or maybe they, maybe they lived across town and you just never met them. Maybe they're your neighbor and you just never really got to have a conversation with them. All of these people come together in Christ to be honored, to live life together, to live without sin, to bless each other. It's gonna be something else. And so that's what we look forward to. The other thing that I would say is what I'm sharing with you, it does require a degree of imagination. Um, Francis Schaeffer reminded believers that imagination, it's, it's fine and good, but it can be dangerous if it's not grounded in the word of God. And so he said it this way, imagination should not fly away from the truth, but upon it. And so we want our imagination to be built upon what God says to be true. That's what we're hopefully doing this morning.
And so let's learn more about this city. Verse 15, it says, the one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city was laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold as clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth, how do you say that one? Yeah, you said it. The 11th, there's another one I don't know how to say. The 12th, amethyst. The 12 gates are the 12 pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl, and the main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. So let me unpack a couple of things for you here. It says that the city is a square, and it measures 12,000 stadia. That's 1,400 miles. So this is a city that is... 1.96 million square miles big. Um, Nevada is 110,000 square miles. Alaska is 650 roughly. In other words, this is really big. Um, And and so John MacArthur, he said that he estimated based upon the population density of London that this city could hold over 100 billion people. So there's plenty of space. Kind of makes New York City seem puny at this point. Uh, the, the land mass that this covers would be like from Maine to Florida. Uh, for us on the West Coast, think of San Francisco to Denver. It's huge. Okay? And so perhaps more important than the size is the way that it's shaped. It also says that it's 1,400 miles tall. That's bigger than the Earth's atmosphere. I think that balloon they just shot down was at 1,100. Um, and so it's way up there. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Are we going to wander up for, are there going to be skyscrapers? I'm not exactly sure what that means if you take it in a literal sense. What it definitely lets us know is that within the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. And do you know what it was? It was a symmetrical cube. And so what it's really communicating to us is this place that God has gone away to prepare for us is the Holy of Holies. It's huge and it's where he dwells. And the Holy of Holies within the Old Testament, one person could go in one day a year to make atonement for sin. We're all going to wander around this gigantic place because sin has been atoned for and we will all walk saved by the blood of the lamb, our names written in his book completely. There'll be no discussion about sin except for maybe to say, do you remember how he forgave us? Do you notice it's not here? So there's no... The atonement is taken care of, and because of that, we will all walk around God's holy of holies, enjoying his presence and worshiping him forever. And so that's a really great picture. Different people from different ages, different cultures, different uh, different food, different music, different uh, occupations, different stories of how Jesus saved people within their generation, different martyrs from different ages sharing uh, how God used them and uplifted them and how uh, he, he, he now saves them and their, their fulfillment is in him. All these stories, your story of how God has saved you, sharing that with others. A humongous place. The, the other thing that this place has is it has really thick, ornate walls. Uh, the, the measuring 
It was 216 feet thick. And you might think, why does this city need walls? Like ancient cities, the reason they had walls was because if trouble happens, we have a, a source of defense. And when they'd close the gates at night, because who knows who's going to try and get in through these gates. Uh, we find out that these gates are always open, that they're always able to go in and out. That's important too, because you might think, well, do I only get, I mean, I know it's 2 billion square miles, but is this the only area that I get? Do I get to leave the city? And the answer is yes. The gates are always open. You can explore the rest of God's creation as well. What, what does he do with the new earth? What's the universe like? What's going on all around us? Um, there'll be just this infinite expanse of God's glory to explore. And so if heaven sounds boring, little cherubs and diapers playing harps or something, that's not what the Bible says. Now, the stones, there's been a lot of speculation about those. They, they match the breastplate of the high priest, which each stone had a symbolic reference to one of the 12 tribes of Israel. People have tried to unpack these stones and tell us what they mean uh, within, the, within the city walls. There's as many conjectures on that as there is commentary, so I'm not going to go there. You can read some of those if you want to. I think what's really clear about them is that they are Speaking of God's glory and wealth, uh, his city has no expense spared and his glory is radiant. It's awe-inspiring. It shines forth. It makes you be in awe. I think the other thing that these are is they're eternal monuments to God's character and his actions. Uh, they will make the Statue of Liberty, the Washington Monument, Mount Rushmore, and any other human mom monuments, they'll make them look like child's play. National monuments and the wonders of world have and the wonders of the world have nothing on the treasures of God's everlasting kingdom. The other thing is what do national monuments do? They remind us of our past and they tell us who we are. Right? That's what national monuments are about. They remind us of our past and they tell us who we are. And so there's going to be a nation, a city, a place in heaven that reminds us of our past and what God has done for us and his glory and his victory, his defeat of sin and death, his conquering of evil. And then it's going to remind us of who we are in him, who we are as a people. It's going to speak to a nation that exceeds any nation that's ever existed. And we're called citizens of that nation. It says that the streets, and in fact, the whole city are golden, and the gold is described as pure gold, transparent as glass. That might sound kind of weird to vision, envision. But one of the things that gold was used for was in the temple, uh, the elements of pure gold without any um, need for refinement, uh, without any issues at all, those were used in worship. People would often own gold, but it had impurities. And so there was this picture of God's elements of worship and the things that were gold within the temple. It was perfect because he was perfect. The elements of gold that we wore had imperfections because we have imperfections. And so what this city is about is it's a place of utter perfection. Everything has been refined, including you and I. You see, because when you come to salvation in Jesus Christ, he wipes out your sin from the past. He deals with your sin in the future. He makes you a new creation. He justifies you. But then the other thing that he does, little by little, bit by bit, is he transforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. He makes us perfect as he is perfect. You shall be holy for I am holy. Well, in this place, in this heaven, there's not an inkling, not, a, not even a little bit of sin. And so everyone 
is as pure as God is pure because he has made us that way. And that's what this refined gold is about. So you have a really big city. You have people throughout all the ages. You have national monuments reminding us of who God is and who we are as his people. You have enjoying God and his presence forever. But there are some things that aren't there. And so as we look at verses uh, 22 through 27, we see some things aren't there. It says, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it. And its lamp is the lamb. The, nation will walk, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life. And so there's no temple there. Uh, when Jesus came... We described him at Christmas, one of his common names is Emmanuel, God with us. And we understand that in the Old Testament, God was maybe in a certain spot that they, I mean, he's always everywhere, he's God. But his, his presence was manifested in a certain place within the temple. Jesus shows up and his glory is manifested, made evident among us. He walks among us and the fullness of deity dwelt in him. And we got to see God for exactly who he is in the person of Jesus. He is our Emmanuel. Now, what this city is describing is a place where he is a physical, tangible, real, glorious, walking, resurrected God person, God man, who lives at the center of this city and his glory emanates throughout it. Now, that might sound like kind of weird theological speak to you, but do you ever have a hard time remembering God's glory? Do you ever get distracted? Do you ever get pulled off course and think that the things of this world are where you're going to find your life? There'll be no room for it in heaven because God's glory and his presence will radiate in such a way and through us in such a way that you could never mistake anything else for life or truth. It says that there's no need for the sun or the moon. Uh, Jesus described himself as the light of the world and anyone who follows in me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, John used the word light within, without his, within his writings, both the gospel of John and his two letters. He uses light very often as a metaphor for God's glory. In fact, the Bible does that over and over again. Light is used as a metaphor for God's glory. Moses went up on the mountain of Sinai and he interacted with God. And when he came down, his face shined with God's glory, but it was a fading glory. At Jesus's transfiguration, the, the light that emanated from him was so bright that it says the disciples fell asleep. They passed out. It was more than they could take in. Paul describes God's glory as unapproachable light. Um, and so that's what's being shared with us is this brilliance of God's character, his glory, the uniqueness of who he is, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his justice, his love. We could keep going. It's going to be so evident all of the time to each and every one of us and through each and every one of us that it is a place of perfection. And it says the nations will walk by the light and bring glory and honor. 
First uh, John one seven says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. Uh, the nations is a reference to not Jewish people. And there was a divide between not Jewish people and the rest of the world, Gentiles, until Christ broke down that divide and we now walk together. And, and so what's going to happen here is that there is this city, there is this place that comes down from heaven, the new Jerusalem, and it's glorious. But there's also other people around the world living in places and they're coming to the new Jerusalem, bringing their glory, the things that God has given them into this eternal society that they are a part of. And so when we think ourselves as citizens of heaven, this is what we should try to picture. We should try to see ourselves as those who have been given God's glory and bring it into his city of peace. And so we might, you might ask yourself, what part would God have me take up in his new Jerusalem, his city of peace? What would he have me do within his city of peace? And I think this is an important question to answer because he says that we should pray that God's will in heaven be done on earth. And so what's his will for me in heaven? To glorify him, to enjoy him forever, to lead others to do the same, to bless other people, to be filled with the fullness of Christ so that it emanates, radiates, moves out of me to the people around me so that they are blessed. What would he have me do in heaven? He would have me enjoy him, be filled with his grace and bless others. How should I live on earth? I should live the same way. One of the phrases that they say about Christians who really dig into heaven is they say these people are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. I don't think you can be of earthly good until you're heavenly minded. I don't think you can make a genuine lasting difference on this earth until your mind is fixed on what God says is right and best in heaven. I don't think you can do it. I think you can do some nice things and you can be a kind person. Kindness does not save you. Being nice does not save you. It doesn't make you walk in Jesus's image. It doesn't transform you into the heart of God. Only he can do that through us. All those things necessitate grace. I can't save myself. I can't make myself right. I can't make myself like Christ. I don't have the ability. And anybody that tells you to try doesn't understand what God is saying to us as human beings because it necessitates grace to be saved, transformed, and made to live a life that truly matters in the scope of eternity. And so an earthly mind, let me just say, if you're earthly minded, you will not use your resources for the benefit of others. If you're earthly minded, you will not love your spouse in a way that Christ loves the church. If you're earthly minded, you will not care about the eternity of your neighbor. You won't share Christ with him. If you're earthly minded, you're not going to share Jesus in your workplace. If you're earthly minded, you're going to live like the people around you. And so we're not to be in the pattern of this world, but instead we're to be transformed into the image of Christ as our act of spiritual worship. We say, God, my life is yours and I'm not gonna live like this world around me. I'm gonna fix my mind on heaven. Uh, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter three that we should have our mind fixed. We should be pursuing Christ in the heavenly places. That same word that he uses to seek Christ in the heavenly places is the same word that Jesus used when he said he came to seek and save the lost. It, that it's an ongoing, never stopping, never ending pursuit. So that means every day of my life, I'm training my mind to think heavenly. I'm training my mind through the word of God to see the hope that is built up for me in heaven. Because if, if I don't see that, I won't live different here. 
And so the nations, they come and they bring their light. They walk in the light. They live in the light. And so this mutual fellowship with God becomes an all-inclusive new earth reality. Everyone is walking with God all of the time. And the result of that is all people are entering into the new Jerusalem to bring the glory that God has given them. And they really care about this society that they're a part of. You ever feel sort of uh, apathetic about our nation? You get to the point where you look at politics and you go, why bother? Uh, you look at the, the leaders and you go, there's no hope there. Everyone will have their eyes fixed on a king who is so worthy, so gracious, so amazing that their heart longs to invest in his city and in his world. The other thing we see that's not there is nothing unclean or detestable or false enters. And Jesus does not write the names of those who are still unjustified by his blood in the book of life. We must go from being unclean to being justified through Jesus's death for us. We have to be changed from detestable pollutants of sin to sanctified members of God's family. We have to be moved from living by lies to walking in the light. As Jesus said, we must be born again. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? The scriptures tell us we can be sure of this. You don't have to wonder or question or not know if Christ has saved you. Because if you trust that he died on the cross for your sin, your sins are paid for. There's nothing you do. There's no action on your part. You don't add to Jesus's death. And if you, what you add to his death, if you get it right, then you'll be saved. No, you are saved through his work. It is all that is needed for your salvation. And so you can know that you're saved, not wonder, not question, not hope. You can know that you're saved. And the way that you do that is you say, Jesus Christ, I believe that your death on the cross paid for my sin once and for all. You were buried into the grave and you rose from the dead three days later and I hand my life and my eternity over to you. I trust and follow you moving forward. If you do that, you know you're saved because you belong to him based upon a purchase price that he paid for you. You've accepted his grace. You're his. Nobody can take it away. And so have you been born again? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? As followers of Jesus, of those who have made those decisions, and we belong to him, his spirit has moved in our heart. He's drawn us near. We've repented of our sin. We've trusted in him. And he's conforming us to his image. Listen to me. Looking at heaven the right way changes the way that you live. We want to have an eternal perspective. We want to be heavenly minded so that we live in a way that brings heaven to earth now. God's presence, his power living through us now. We want to live that way. One, because it brings him glory and he deserves it. He's worthy of it. But two, because as Christ cares about a dying world, so should we. And so our lives should be different. Our words should be different. The way that we live should be different. Not because we're trying really hard, but because we really love to walk with God. 
And if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I don't want you to leave today without being certain that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If, if God is calling you to him, and he always is, but if God is calling you to him this morning and he is drawing you near and like that husband reaching to the bride and saying, will you be mine? Will you respond in a positive way to his love and allow him to lead you? If you do that, you're saved. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and you have been born again. If you do that this morning, I want you to talk to whoever you came with. I want you to walk up here and talk to me after the service is over. And let's talk what, what that means as you move forward. Let me pray with you. And uh, yeah. Jesus, this morning, our, our Father in heaven this morning, we do pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That you would cause us to see a place, a life, an eternity that is sinless because your glory is manifested through your people. And I pray God that we would live that way here and now. That we would see your grace as fully sufficient for our lives. That we would have our eyes fixed on you in heaven and the place that you've stored up for us. That as you have reached out to us and made us yours that we would live in a fashion that demonstrates that we are yours not by our own strength and our own effort, but because we truly love to walk with you. I pray for those here this morning that have not made a decision to follow you. Maybe they just made it right now, God. I do pray that you're working in hearts and people are responding to you. That they're saying that they want to be yours and they're trusting in your son's death, burial, and resurrection for their salvation and their new life and their eternity. I pray that they would leave here certain that they have been saved, that they've been born again, and that they would share that news with whoever they came with or someone else. I pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.